Let's turn to the Lord's Word together. Genesis chapter 50 is our Old Testament reading. Genesis 50, reading verses 15 to 21. This will be our sermon text as well. Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. This is the living and abiding Word of God. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted, comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And our New Testament text is Ephesians chapter 1, glorious chapter here, which speaks so much of the uh, sovereign will of God at work to save his people, which is what we saw there in Genesis 50 as well. So Ephesians chapter 1, reading the whole chapter. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. 
Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, who fills all in all. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word. Now let's pray together. Lord, once again, we would ask that You would bless Your Word to us, that You would do us good by the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, that You would remind us who You are, that we might trust You wholeheartedly. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Westminster Shorter Catechism 11. It's about the providence of God, and that's what we're considering tonight, looking especially at Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. The providence of God. Uh, Do you trust the providence of God? We confess that we do. It's right there in our catechism. Uh, If you were here this morning, we confessed it all together. We, we did that uh, this morning in the worship service. We confess that we believe that God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. That's what we say we believe. Do we trust Him and His providence? We, we say that we believe God preserves all His creatures. Everything He made, He sustains its life for as long as it has life. He's the one sustaining it. He governs everything. Absolutely all His creatures and all their actions. He's, he's superintending them, all of them. There's no pocket of creation to which the providence of God does not reach. But we also are confessing here that we're saying we believe not only this awesome power of God to sustain and govern everything, we're also confessing that it's not just this brute power. It's uh, wise. It's a holy, loving power. The Catechism says, in particular, it's holy. It's not, uh, his, his, his providence is not born of sin. It, it comes out of His holy character, His pure character. And we say that His providence is wise, carried out with perfect wisdom and insight. Uh, he, he, he preserves and governs everything, and He makes no mistakes. doesn't drop the ball once. And the, uh, the very word here that we're discussing, providence, communicates this tender care, right? The, the root of the word is to provide. The Lord is providing 
for all of his creation. He didn't wind up the clockwork and let it go. He's providing day by day, moment by moment, like a, like a, like a, like a gracious gardener tending a garden or like a, like a shepherd tending a flock. The Lord, or like, a, like a father caring for his family, he's there, he's overseeing it, he's, he's guiding it, he's preserving it, he's protecting it, uh, making sure that everything happens according to his perfect, wise plan. It's a beautiful doctrine. Do we believe it? Do we trust him, right? It's one thing to say, well, yes, I believe in the providence of God. I see it in Scripture. Uh, it, makes, it makes sense to me. I believe that this is true. It's another thing to really trust him in his providence. When the, when the, when the, when the unexpected bills come or when the car accident happens, when the inconveniences happen, when the, when the illness comes, when we see the church struggling, when we see bigger things happening, Right? Uh, COVID or, 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 or problems we see in our culture, all these things, is our gut reaction trust in our most holy, wise, and powerful God preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. That, loved ones, is what I desire for my own heart, and I'm sure it's what you desire for your heart too, that, that your heart would be taught what your head confesses about the providence of God. Scripture is full of stories which highlight, which illumine for us this uh, glorious doctrine of the providence of God. Uh, we, could look at, we could look at many. Uh, one of the clearest accounts, though, is uh, in Genesis here in chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. And that's where, that's where we're going to turn now and turn our attention to together. So Genesis 50, 15 to 21. We're picking up the story um, towards the end of Genesis, we're in the very last bit of Genesis here. Uh, Joseph's brothers are terrified of Joseph, as we pick up in verse 15. Their father has just died. Jacob has just died, and they are scared now that this whole time Joseph was just being nice, playing nice, to make sure he didn't upset Dad. And now that Dad's gone, he can really get back at his brothers. And you, would, you understand, of course, why they might think this, why they might be afraid of this. They did not treat him very well. Uh, they had tried to kill him. They had intended to kill him. Um, it was only uh, at the last minute they changed that plan. They threw him in a pit that he couldn't get out of instead. And then they changed that plan and said, let's, let's make some money off our brother. Let's sell him as a slave to these Egyptians who just happen to be passing by. And they hope they're never going to have to see this this, uh, this pain of a brother again. They hate him. That's, that's the background here. And uh, they, go back to, they go back to their father, Jacob, after they've sold him into slavery, in, after they've sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. They go back to their father and they say, uh, uh, some wild animals killed him. And uh, they, they lie to cover themselves up. They didn't treat him very well. They also know that once Joseph got to Egypt, things didn't exactly work out for him well there for quite a while either. He did okay at first. He did quite well. He, he uh, was Potiphar's servant, and he, he did everything his master said, he, he, and he was really trustworthy. And, of course, he advances uh, in his master's appreciation, and pretty soon he's second in command under his master, steward over everything uh, his master owns there in Egypt. Then he's accused falsely of rape and thrown in prison again. Locked up again. And, and, of course, you know, the story eventually, uh, in God's providence, he is freed from, 
prison and becomes second in command of all of Egypt. But any, of course, the brothers come down and they're saved from famine because of what Joseph does there in Egypt. But, but they're wondering, because of all that, because of everything he went through because of us and because of how we treated him, can our brother really forgive us? I mean, we sold him as a slave when he was 17 years old. Is he really going to forgive us? They're still carrying the guilt of their sin against him. Joseph has forgiven them. He's, he's already told them that. But now they are fearful again. So he says, Dad wanted to make sure, they say to him, Dad wanted to make sure that you'd still forgive us. Joseph says, his reaction here is, is wonderful. It's moving. He weeps when he hears this. He loves his brothers and he doesn't want them fearing him. Uh, uh, he has forgiven them. He wants them to know that. He forgave them a long time ago. And I think the sense is that he forgave them even before uh, they, they, they uh, sought it. Yes, he wanted to see repentance and change in them, but he, he tells them here he's not God. He's not in the place to hold their sin against them. Uh, uh, he's, he is, uh, he's going to continue to provide for them. So he forgives them. But what is it that makes Joseph able to do this, able to forgive them so, uh, so willingly for all, their, uh, all the sin they did to him. We see it in verse, verse 20. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is the truth that has been drilled down into Joseph's heart through all these years all his suffering, this is what's been drilled into him. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's what sustained him through that. That's what gave him perseverance, hoping and trusting in God and the goodness of God through everything he was going through. And now it's also what's enabled him to forgive his brothers. He knows you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I, I am going to forgive you because of my trust in him. So that's, that's going to be the focus now of, of our study here tonight on providence. Looking at this statement, this glorious confession of faith that Joseph gives us, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. We're in verse 20 here. Let's look at what he says here then. Uh, The first thing I want us to, to consider is that Joseph tells us that God's providence includes sin and suffering. God's providence includes sin and suffering. He says, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. So his view of God's providence is that it, it encompasses, it, it comprehends even evil purposes. It can, be hard to, um, it can be hard to say that. We don't want to accuse God of being responsible or guilty for sin. We don't understand some, you know, how he can be good and at the same time, by his providence, allow things like he allowed happen to Joseph. On a larger scale, right? How could a good God allow the Holocaust? How can a good God allow uh, the fall into sin? How can a good God allow the crucifixion of the one innocent man who ever lived? Those are often questions lobbied against Christians, aren't they, who believe these things? How can God allow the hurt in history? How can a God allow the hurt in our own lives? The sin that others have committed against us, or our own sin. Does God's providence include my sin? 
But loved ones, uh, if we start to say things like, well, God is sovereign or, and, and by his providence he allows good but not evil, or his, you know, that evil things, sinful things are outside of his providential care, we're really starting down a very dangerous road because where God's sovereignty ends is where the sovereignty of some other person or force begins. If, if God's not sovereign over sin, then, then who is? The sinner himself? Satan? Someone is is causing this. Someone is behind this. Who is sovereign here? If if he's not, who isn't? What about suffering? If he's not sovereign over suffering, what about that? If he's not sovereign over the fall, if he's not sovereign over the death of Christ, who is? And, And also, it's a very personal question, isn't it? Because if sin isn't within the circle of his providence, then what hope do I have that he can actually save me from my sin? If his providence ends where sin begins, then what hope do sinners have of being saved by him? We're dead in our sins. We're not going to choose him unless he is sovereign over it. And the Bible's so clear in this, isn't it? We, we, saw it, we see it right here, Genesis 50, verse 20. You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. So we must confess this truth. God is sovereign even over sin. We see it in the book of Job, too, don't we? A great extended treatment of this subject. And we hear these wonderful words of faith. It's almost incomprehensible, Job's faith, in these words in Job 2, verses 9 to 10. His kids have just been killed. Uh, he's lost all his wealth. It's evaporated overnight. His body's racked with painful sores. And his wife says, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job says, Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? We hear this same truth in Acts chapter 2. Peter, preaching on Pentecost, says, to the Jews there, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says, Even the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is encompassed by the providence of God, especially the crucifixion of Christ, we might say. So, loved ones, if the providence of God comprehends these things, is he not able also to turn even our sin and the sins of others against us uh, for our good. There's a wonderful comfort here for us that His providence is superintended. Everything, including evil. He does this without being guilty for sin. There's a mystery here that's hard to comprehend. That, that somehow, by His awesome power, He creates people who are responsible for their own choices and at the same time, decrees what their choices will be. But he is not the one who is responsible for their sin. And yet he's using them for his own purposes. So that's the first thing we see in Joseph's confession of faith. Um, We see that God's providence includes sin and suffering. What we see next, though, is that this providence of God, which uses sin and suffering, uses it for our good. God's providence uses it for good. Joseph says again, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. God used this evil of Joseph being sent to Egypt 
to accomplish the good of saving his people and many other peoples from many other nations from famine. What we see here in Genesis 50 is the Old Testament version of the uh, wonderful text, Romans 8.28, isn't it? Where Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What kind of good is Paul talking about there? Does he mean that if you're a Christian, you might have some bad things happen, but it's going to work out fine in the end? Uh, it's really it's deeper than that, isn't it? He's saying uh, God is going to use even the evil things and the bad things in your life to make you like Jesus and to bring you to glory. That's what he goes on to describe there in Romans chapter 8 in the following verses after 28 about how we're conformed to the image of his Son and how he's worked every part of our salvation to lead us to home to himself in glory. This is God's purpose in the evil of the suffering of Christ It is to shape us into the image of Christ and bring us to glory. The the truth we're seeing here is that the evil in my life is accomplishing the purpose of making me more like Christ, bringing me closer to glory. How how does God do this? We can't know know, the the inner workings of his providence and the details of, of how he works these things out, but I think we can understand something about it, as we look at the, the way God has done this, um, for instance, in, in, in uh, this situation here with Joseph that we're considering tonight, God orchestrates the jealousy of Joseph's brothers. Right? He, that, yes, it's their sin, but he orchestrates it. And he orchestrates the fact that just at the moment when they're thinking about what they're going to do to him, these, uh, sl- these uh, uh, slave traders are going to Egypt. So that it would just so happen that he would, would get there. Now, could God have provided uh, another way for them to get to Egypt without this sin? Yes. Could God have, could God have done a, you know, not even had the famine happen at all? Yes. But he does what he does to show his glorious saving power and goodness He uses sin to show forth uh, his own goodness and grace and glory. And and this is uh, even on a larger, so much larger a scale in Christ. He takes the greatest sin ever committed, the greatest evil ever done, which was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And he uses that to bring to pass the greatest good, the most glorious, uh, most gracious act that's ever been done. John Piper uh, comments on this and says that at the cross, God, God makes evil commit suicide. That he makes... Uh, sin does its worst, and in that moment, God accomplishes his best. It's a glorious thing, this providence of God. And loved ones, I want you to see that it extends uh, not only in these things, it extends to our own lives. Um, God could even use our sins. He even has providence in his providence over our sins. In our lives. Now, this is, don't, don't get me wrong, we need to be careful here, right? My sin doesn't bring me closer to God. It, sin brings separation. Sin, sin uh, puts me on the path away from heaven. Sin, sin drives a wedge between myself and God. And I should never, ever, for any reason, think that it's uh, a good thing for me to sin. And yet, in God's providence, even when I, when I do sin, because I am in Christ, because, uh, uh, because of his work in me, he uses even that to bring us closer to himself in the end. Paul writes, Romans 5, 20, 
where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God uses our sins to humble us, to make us cast ourselves again on Christ and cry out for His grace and taste it again fresh. He does this in our suffering, too. It's uh, as He strips away our idols, as he, as he shows us our dependence on Christ, as He shows us our weakness, He shows us His strength. So, loved ones, what we have is this wonderful confidence that in everything in my life, every, every detail of my life, God is, is working for my good that I would be more like Christ and brought closer to glory. Now, how should all this theology influence us? Well, it should do for us what we see it doing in the life of Joseph. He's not bitter towards God. He doesn't grumble or complain against God. He doesn't hold his brother's sins against them. He forgives them. Uh, We see in Joseph this wonderful trust. We see it in Job as well. We see it also, there's so many examples of this we could look at in church history. There's one I just read recently uh, about a man named John Rollett. He was an ordained minister serving as a chaplain in London in 1665 to 1666 when uh, the bubonic plague was in its uh, kind of its last hurrah in London at the time. And it was a horrible time. In 18 months, a quarter of London's population died from the plague. Uh, 100,000 people in London. And this man, John Rollett, was fairly certain he'd end up one of them because he's there in London and there's a one in four chance he's He's going to be it too. So he writes a letter to his mother, who doesn't live uh, in London. He, he, he writes a letter to her that, you know, if he does die, this letter gets delivered to mom to tell her, you know, what, what I want her to know in case I do perish from the plague. And uh, his letter is so full of confidence in the goodness of God's providence in this situation. He writes, uh, here, here's, a, here's a little bit of it. He says, Consider the author of this dispensation, the wise, the gracious God. And is not here enough to calm and quiet your spirit? Nature, no doubt, will have its work, but by that time the first transports of grief are over, and you shall have reduced yourself. But to the serious consideration of this, that it is God who has thus ordered things, surely this cannot but mightily prevail with you to submit with a great deal of patience to His will. Consider, did not this providence, as dark and sad as it seems, proceed from infinite wisdom and goodness? And can you then quarrel within? Could you have ordered things better? Remember, tis this God from whom you have received all that mercy which you have had so full and frequent experience of all your days. And can you think hardly of any providence of that God who has manifested himself so good to you, shall one lash make you forget all his love. That's how we want to respond. That's what this doctrine was. We get it down into our hearts. Uh, That's the kind of response to suffering and sin that it produces in us. There's another example, isn't there? Shines brighter than all the others, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. He perfectly submitted himself to the providence of God for him. We already saw what Peter had to say about this as he tells the Jews that they are the ones who killed the Christ. 
Yet it was done by the foreknowledge, the plan, and uh, the providence of God. Uh, Christ submitted himself to that with perfect uh, compliance and perfect trust and, and uh, peace about it. Uh, and, and we see so many uh, echoes in Christ and so much of the fulfillment of what we saw there in Joseph, don't we, as, as Joseph is brought down and humbled and made a slave and uh, suffers. And then he rises to authority. And then he forgives. Much like our Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus who submits himself to the providence of God as he suffers patiently under it and then rises in glory and forgives those who betrayed him. So, loved ones, consider Christ as we, as we close. Consider Christ and, and his submission to the providence of God and, and what he did it for. He did it for you, to save you. He did it so that he would show you his love for you and, and, and so that we can then trust him wholeheartedly and completely, even when his discipline comes. As, as Rollett said in his letter to his mother, shall we doubt his love and forget his love because of one lash of discipline? Every single moment of our lives, every single moment of your life, loved ones, falls out under the providence of God in Christ for you. Well, maybe as you hear all this, loved ones, you say, well, that sounds really nice. But some of the stuff I've been through is just too overwhelming. And when you're in it, you can't think through it. You can't reason your way out of the grief. And in those seasons, there's really, you know, it's like the waves are kind of crashing over you, and you know the lifesaver is there, but you can't grab it. You're just too overwhelmed by what you are going through. But loved ones, even that providence, even that experience is under God's control, isn't it? Even your, your, your sense of being uh, not able to grasp tightly to this doctrine and faith, even that is under His control. So yes, there are moments, there are times where perhaps we cannot grasp this, but even then we're held by Him. So trust Him, loved ones. Uh, trust, his, trust His providence for you. There's no more comforting place to be than trusting in His perfect care. The hymn writer William Cooper, often depressed and sometimes suicidal, wrote those wonderful words about this. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your providence. We thank you for your holy, wise, powerful preservation of us. We thank you for Christ, our Savior, for accomplishing such a glorious salvation for us in him, so that we know that everything that comes about to us is advancing us towards glory when we hold fast to him. Lord, we pray you'd keep us and preserve us for his sake. Amen.